and uh, this song is called George Fox, and uh, and and it goes and the and the chorus goes like this. Take deep breath. Next time I want an audience like this for Americans to tell the truth, I'm going to have to paint, uh, paint him again. Yes, paint Becky. Thank you all so much for for coming out this evening on this beautiful day. Um, I can't think of a a better time to honor this man and, and uh, this community uh, through him. So I, first I want to thank everybody who's been involved in making this happen. Uh, we have a couple of sponsors, the Blue Hill Heritage Trust, who you'll hear from in just a second, and that was Rob's choice um, to sh share the donations from this evening with. Uh, my group, Americans Who Tell the Truth, and also WERU. And, um, well, let me just say something. Well, and I also want to say that I um, thank you to the library for making this space available. I think if you consider um, the Blue Hill Heritage Trust, WERU, and the library, and the, the work that they do, and the services they provide to make this 
um, a viable, sustainable community, it's extraordinary. And uh, so I'm very, very pleased that those are the organizations which are with us this evening and that we're supporting by doing this. So the first thing we're going to do um, is uh, have a few little t short talks by our sponsors. And Chrissy Allen is a development director of Blue Hill Heritage Trust, and Hans Carlson, who's the executive director, are going to come up and talk about the work they do and their relationship with Rob McCall. Good afternoon, everybody. Well, thank you. Um, I mean, it really is an honor to be asked to be part of this uh, this, this afternoon and to be part of this un unveiling. Um, I am in the rather unfortunate position, however, of having to begin my remarks with a mea culpa. Um, I've been running the trust for about 18 months now. I've enjoyed Rob's words about this place that we all love. I've witnessed his unflagging support for the organization that I run. Um, I've said to myself on at least a dozen occasions that I really need to reach out and, and, and get to know this, this person. Um, and then I found out a couple of weeks ago that we were asked to be part of this event, and I was pretty sure that um, this afternoon was going to be the first time that I ever met Rob. And in fact, that's, <laughs> that's what happened. Um, so I regret that, but I hope that uh, I can make up for it going forward. Um, I do want to share with you um, a couple of things um, this afternoon, a couple of things that I have felt that were important points of connection um, for me as I've read Rob's words, and I have read quite a few of them. Um, I think they relate to the work that we're doing at the Trust, and so I think they're appropriate here. The first is his repeated reminder to us of the deep human history um, in the land here, um, even as he writes about the natural world, even as, you know, the wonderful phonology and the wonderful thoughts about the natural wor world. Um, from the time of the last glacial retreat, this land has known people, uh, human use, human ideas, human belief, uh, and he reminds us that this is all part of our place here on the peninsula. And I think the underlying message is that um, this deep connection is really what has created place. I mean, created the sense of place that makes us want to stay and do the right thing by one another, but also um, by the land as well. Um, place is the heritage that comes down to us. It is the heritage in Blue Hill Heritage Trust. Um, and I greatly appreciate Rob's um, inclusivity in the way that he describes the land and the other people and the other beings that make it up. Um, we have not always done the right thing, but you know, by one another or by the land. Um, but his words help us, I think, to see how we might do better. Place is such a funny concept when you think about it. We talk about places, physical location, this place, that place. But we also say things like such and such event took place in 1805, or that that story took place at Blue Hill at the Blue Hill Fair. Taking place, it's such an easy turn of phrase, but maybe we should think about it a bit, a bit more. Um, that life and community, too, take place. It's something that's true. It's something that's worth remembering. Um, the terrain of story and that of living is the same ground, I think. Um, for me, um, that is the significant part of you know, the trust responsibility that we take on when we conserve land um, for our communities to take place. Um, Rob's words have reinforced that in my mind over the last 18 months, and so I want to thank him for that as well as, as everything else. Um, I speak quite often about stewardship, that it is a trust responsibility to leave place as good or, as, or better than you found it, that it is imperative that we teach the next generation um, so that they can carry on the stewardship of the land that we're conserving. Um, I find the same philosophy in, in, in Rob's words, um, and I think maybe a kindred spirit too. Um, so as executive director of Blue Hill Heritage Trust to stalwart supporter, um, I say thank you um, and congratulations on this well-deserved honor. As a reader to author, I say thank you as well. Um, it's a genuine pleasure to be a part of this this afternoon, um, and I'm looking forward to, to more. Um, so that's, those are my words, um, and I'd like to turn it over to Chrissy now to say maybe some, 
some more sentimental things, but certainly something from somebody who has known you for more than half an hour. <laughs> Thank you, everybody. Hi. Um, I'm very touched and honored to be here and celebrate this wonderful occasion. Rob is a dear and longtime friend of my family's, especially my grandparents, who are no longer with us, but I know still hold a, a solid place in Rob and Becky's hearts. Uh, for years, Rob has helped create countless meaningful connections in our community. Through his time as the minister of the Congregational Church, uh, he helped connect people with their faith and their community. Through his time um, loving the mountain and you know, still loving the mountain, he helped connect people to nature and the land. Through his writing, Rob's gentle approach teaches us lessons found in nature, encouraging us to be our better selves. I like to joke that I am the uh, non-churchgoer who got married in a church just so Rob could perform my wedding ceremony. <laughs> and I know that I am not alone. I think for many in our community, Rob was more than just the local minister. Uh, he is someone who takes a genuine interest in his fellow men and women. Rob makes those in his presence feel at ease, appreciated, and heard. Never afraid to take a stance if the cause is just, Rob defends his beliefs in a way that invites conversation rather than argument, and surely is someone we are always glad to run into at the post office or along the trail. Blue Hill Heritage Trust has been incredibly lucky to call Rob a friend and supporter for so many years. Through the Almanac, Rob has a way of connecting our lives to nature's calendar. Living in a community where hiking up Blue Hill Mountain is not always an option for all of our citizens, Rob's column and show on WERU helps pull us all out of the daily grind and transport ourselves into our favorite stretch of coastline, or piece of forest, remembering even for just a moment why we are all truly blessed to live in this place. I know, and everybody at Blue Hill Heritage Trust knows, that Rob's work inspires others to help protect these special places on the peninsula. And for that, we are humbled and extremely grateful. So thank you, Rob. I think I'm going to keep my name as Rob. I like this. <laughs> um, so uh, our next, we're going to have uh, Matt Murphy, the director of the WERU, say a few words about um, ERU and the relationship with Rob McCall. Well, it's a, it's a great privilege to be here to say a few words about Rob's career as a radio personality. Um, <laughs> first, on, first, on behalf of everyone at WERU, congratulations, Rob, and thank you. <laughs> Rob is more than a radio commentator. Um, he's a guide. Uh, he is a truth teller over the airwaves. And that means a lot to a lot of people. It's not just listening to someone say a few opinions. It's someone speaking very deeply. And that's why this program is so deeply, Awanacho Almanac is so deeply appreciated by so many people. Awanacho Almanac has been on the air for over 25 years, I guess. It's a pretty much an iconic program, one of the pillars of our schedule, as Rob is a pillar of the community. Um, you know, on Awanandra Almanac over the years, he's given us a gazillion and one seed pods to carry around with us. <laughs> and he shared a few rank opinions in his day, <laughs> which have really helped us make sense at times of our own rank opinions and our own thoughts and feelings about the madness that goes on around us and the goodness that goes on around us. I've got to say something about Rob's voice. That voice is like a warm embrace. You feel held when you're listening to Rob. And it, he could be reading the phone book and you'd feel held. <laughs> you, you feel loved, and he wouldn't even have to say your name. 
And incidentally, when you hear Awanaja Almanac and Rob on the air, his producer is, is his own Becky McCall, is the technical producer of the program. So every time you're getting that uh, warm embrace from Rob, you're getting a nice little hug from Becky, too. <laughs> well, it's for all of us in this room and all of us who get to listen to WERU and hear Awanaja Almanac, and those of us who know Rob and Becky well, it's, great. it's a great uh, privilege and pleasure to know them both. And once again, congratulations to both of you, and I think, Rob, you're going to say a few words. Ladies and gentlemen, Rob Shetterly. <laughs> I'm uh, going to talk just a little bit about the Americans of Telltruth project because I suspect that some of you aren't familiar with, well, probably a lot of you have heard me talk one time or another, you're somewhat <laughs> familiar with it, but uh, what, what we actually do and, and especially the educational work, because I just want to give you a context for what this is that um, I've enlisted Rob McCall to be in. So, um, you know, it was almost 17 years ago that I uh, painted the first portrait in the series, um, which was another writer, Walt Whitman, um, whom I'm sure you know well and often quote. Um, and uh, at the time that I began, it was an act of, um, well, it was a layered act. It was an, a partly defiance against being, this country being taken into a war which never should have happened, the Iraq War. Uh, it was called Americans Who Tell the Truth because, you know, quite simply we were being lied to about the reasons for war. And I was really distraught. I was angry. I was very sad about all the victims. And I really wanted to take care of myself primarily. I wasn't thinking that I would one day be standing in the Blue Hill Library having painted Rob McCall. I was thinking I needed to surround myself with Americans I felt proud to be a member of rather than rant one more day about uh, the ones that I was so distressed about and what they were doing to the country and to the world. And that's where it started and I had this goal that I would paint 50 portraits and I thought they would end up in my basement and nobody would ever see them but I, I would feel a lot better. And, uh, and I began to feel better. I painted Frederick Douglass and Susan B. Anthony and Elizabeth Cady Stanton and you know, on and on and on and, and then up into the 20th century and, and in two and a half years I had uh, 50 portraits. And I thought, well, I'm just getting started. This is so cool. <laughs> I mean, it's mostly that I was learning so much. You know? We're just, this country doesn't do really a good job of teaching its own history, especially the history that's you know, outside of or behind the myth the real history about how change really happens and why. You know, it's, it's an enormous irony of this country that, um, you know, we all claim to believe in a certain set of values, but think of all the courage, all the persistence, all the blood that's had to be spent to actually get those values to the majority of the people. Um, that's where the rub is, and that's the kind of people that I'm interested in painting. People who have often the marginalized people, the, the people who are left out, the people who have been the uh, objects of, of prejudice who have fought to be included in the overall values of the country. And the project is now has over 230 portraits and uh, is still growing. Uh, and it's a few years ago, it became, I mean, I, when I started it, I really didn't think it was going to be anything but just a statement of my own. And then it began to be its own sort of educational statement. I mean, it began to travel thanks to Bob Sargent. I don't doubt if Bob's here, but you know, from Sargentville, who came to me and said, this should be a national traveling show, and I can help that happen. Uh, as a matter of fact, it happened when I had 17 paintings completed, and they were shown right upstairs here. He uh, called me up. I didn't know Bob Sargent. And for the next five years, we worked very closely together, and that's when the show began to travel all over the country. It was its own education in a way. I mean, just the portraits going out there, people in schools, libraries, colleges, museums, getting involved with them. 
And then we thought, well, this really needs to be a different kind of educational project. We have to go, get to children and try to empower them you know, to become engaged citizens at an early age. One of the things that I've done in the, in the show, um, Rob's now the exception to the show. I'm painting a lot of young people. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> expressly to try to tell kids how powerful they can be, especially at a time in this country's history, in this world's history, when governments are failing us. You know, our governments are really failing us. They are not providing for the future of our own children and their children and their children. Uh, it's extremely distressing. So we started this, something called the Samantha Smith Challenge. I suspect a lot of you know who Samantha Smith is, or was, um, where we, for this is our fourth year in Maine. We, we have hundreds of middle schoolers from all over the state of Maine doing things like Samantha Smith. They choose their own issues. They choose what they want to do something about. They research it. They get engaged. They um, get involved outside the school. It's all done in such a way that it's, it fits with the common core so that Teachers don't have to say, oh, well, I don't have time for that because we've got to do this and we've got to take this test. It all fits. And the kids do it. And um, they do extraordinary things. Uh, and by the end of the Samantha Smith Challenge every year, they're actually involved in solving a problem. Last year, we had 500 kids doing 50 different projects, I mean, 50 different issues. Uh, they were just all over the place. They were amazing. You know, everything from climate change to teen suicide, to depression, to you know, planting uh, flowers for you know butterflies. And it was just they chose, they did it, and they accomplished a lot. This year is particularly well. How many of you know that the the first Monday in June is Samantha Smith Day in the state of Maine? I didn't know that a few years ago, but it is. And we hold our culminating event at Thomas College. There are our partners in this. They have a center there for innovation and education, and they work with us, and they also provide their space to, for us to bring these kids from all over the state to do something like a science fair, where they present the social, environmental, economic, uh, you know, psychological issues that they've been working on. They meet each other from all the different schools. They talk to, the to each other about what their projects were. And then we bring in a speaker. And this year, we're bringing Kelsey Juliana. Kelsey Juliana sued the United States government six years ago when she was 15 years old under the uh, public trust doctrine. That's the doctrine that says, basically, one of the primary functions of a government should be to protect the environment for future generations. Our government is not doing that. Uh, and so what they're suing for, and there's a group of kids called our Children's Trust. They're also loosely called Earth Guardians. They're a bunch of teenagers who sued the United States government in 2015, or no, back in 2012. Um, and now there are 21 of them in the suit. The suit is called Juliana versus U.S. It's gone through several uh, preliminary court stages. It's going to have its first uh, major hearing on, uh, come to trial on October 29th in Eugene, Oregon. The date's been set. I happened to be in Eugene, Oregon a couple weeks ago to meet Kelsey, to paint her portrait. And uh, just by happenstance, the judge decided to have the hearing right then to set the date. And there were all these lawyers, very you know, fancy lawyers from the government there, to say, oh, no, you can't do this. You know, we want another delay. We want this dismissed. We want, there's no re you know, this is an insult to the country. And the judge said, this case is going to be held on October 29th. Um, it's really, really exciting. So uh, I just finished and just framed today, this morning, uh, Kelsey's portrait. She will be here in Blue Hill, speaking in Blue Hill on June 3rd. She will speak at Thomas College to uh, the culminating event of the Samantha Smith Challenge. I mean, the idea is that you bring a 15-year-old, I mean, she's now 21, but she was a 15-year-old girl when she started this suit, and you show kids what kids can do. You know, we're sort of led to believe all the time that you, you, know, you have to be old enough to vote to make a difference. Well. You know, most big changes in this country were done by people who didn't have any access to the vote. 
Um, and so, and including kids. And I've painted now a lot of kids. So Kelsey's going to be here, and then she's going to speak at George Stevens on the 5th and at COA later on the 5th. So um, and if you get a chance, uh, the, the, the event on the 3rd is going to be up at the Bagaduce Lending Library Auditorium, the new auditorium up there. I uh, hope a lot of you will come. Um, she's a dynamo, uh, really something, a, a, a young woman who's very exciting to be around with enormous energy, and she's carrying a great weight. When I was in the courtroom, sitting a few rows back, and ahead of me were the heads of all these kids who were suing the government to force the government to do something about climate change. I don't know if I've ever been so moved in a long time, you know, with these damn lawyers from the government saying, these kids don't have any standing, we don't have to do this, and the judge saying, oh, yes, you do. I had the sense at that moment that there was, there was potentially a hinge here, you know, a hinge in history, that if they win this suit, I mean, the next step after Eugene could be the Supreme Court. And just, it would be so powerful, you know, to have a bunch of teenagers win a suit like this and force this government to do the right thing. So that's Americans to Tell the Truth. We do a lot of this kind of stuff now. We do all, it's all about education, and uh, I keep looking for um, more people to paint. But, you know, I haven't been any more pleased in a long time to have uh, painted Rob McCall. I've, I have read his almanac for years and years. And I would kind of read through the, the nature stuff at the beginning, which is, you know, it's fantastic. And then I would, but I was always in a hurry to get to the rank opinions. Uh, and there, you may know why. I mean, I was kind of like to have my own rank opinions endorsed by a man like this. <laughs> Unfortunately, he often provided a, a kind of empathy for my antagonists that I wouldn't naturally feel, but I appreciated that. And then I began to think more about that. And it occurred to me that, you know, actually the most radical thing that he does, the, the, the thing that he says that's the most threatening to the status quo in this country is actually in the first part. It's the observations of nature. You know, we live in a country that, in a world, that has tried to objectify and has very successfully and commercialize nature. <coughs> Um, you know, we're in the position we are now because that has gone on for so long. And the way he talks about nature, the way he is so acute in his observations, the way um, he spiritualizes everything, um, you know, that is the mentality, that is the relationship that we so desperately need, and that is the thing that is actually the most subversive to the world, the way the world is run today. Just those observations. And the, the way that they invite us then to go out ourselves into, to take these walks on the land that's you know, provided by the Blue Hill Heritage Trust. And, um, and look ourselves and look much more deeply than we usually look to see um, you know, all those things that are going on and then try to understand the relationships with each other. You know, I was walking this morning behind my house, which is a property that's managed by the Blue Hill Heritage Trust. Thank you very much. And, um, and it's that time of year I was out there, the, the, the sun was low. And it was making all the little threads where baby spiders had ballooned back and forth across the path. And they were all glinting in the sun. And normally I'm kind of walking through there, you know, <laughs> like that. And um, suddenly I was thinking, geez, this is really interesting. There's a thread that goes from the spruce to the fir, and then from the shad bush to the alder, and then from the birch to the oak to the, you know, the ash to the, you know, just all these things were connected. There was a thread from a mossy rock to a mossy stump. They were everywhere. And I thought, oh, Rob's been here. <laughs> <laughs> That's what he does. I mean, you've probably never been, you know, likened to a baby spider before, but <laughs> it's those connections. That's the work he does. That's the work that is so incredibly important for all of us to do. 
you know? And instead of feeling annoyed with all these things in my face, I was saying, yes, this is so great. I'm so tangled up in the web that he creates, you know, through his writing and through his person. Um, and it feels really good. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, so, um, His sensibility and his writing have, I mean, I don't know, I mean, I read a lot. I read a lot of nature writers. I've painted a lot of nature writers. I paint a lot of naturalists, you know. I don't think anybody writes any better anywhere um, about nature and what he sees and our connection to it. And also, you know, as we were talking on the radio the other day, I mean, it's, what he has is, is not just, he's not reporting. He's not reporting, he's not a scientist. He's an artist. And he writes with a kind of artistry, which is compelling because it's full of good humor, it's full of wit, and it's full of just remarkable perception. If someone of you, I, I can't believe there's anybody in this room who doesn't read the almanac or listen to it, but um, go back and read them again. I've been reading them again. They're just they're marvelous. Um, so. Um, we're gonna, what I'm gonna do now is uh, we're gonna un unveil this portrait. And uh, Rob, uh, assuming you're all still in the room after we do that, <laughs> he's, gonna, he's gonna read the quote on it. You know, a big part of this Americans to Tell the Truth thing is not just painting a portrait, it's presenting some language uh, that kind of suggests, I hope, why the person is in the portrait and why he or she is looking at you. Uh, with the intentness that he is. Should we do it? No, okay. let's do it, yeah. Let's do it, okay. okay. Let's see if I can do it without pulling it off right here. There we go. One thing I did was, um, thank you. Um, one thing I did was, you know, when I'm working on a portrait, I have, I keep a, quite a catalog of potential quotes, and Rob was providing them, Becky was providing quotes, and this one uh, came from a sermon that he gave on an Easter Sunday. And it's just, I don't care what you believe, frankly. I don't care if you believe that Christ was actually bodily resurrected from the condition of being clinically dead, or if you believe it's all a silly myth. I don't care what you believe. I care what you love. If you love the creator and the creatures and your neighbor and yourself and your family and your enemy and the earth and the great mystery, then what in the world do you need beliefs for? And if you don't love these, what earthly good will beliefs do you anyway? I want to thank everyone too, Matt, Chrissy, uh, Rob, for this wonderful project now that's been going on for so many years and, and, and touched so many people all, all around the country, um, especially, uh, you know, bringing encouragement to young and old, you know, for the work that we all have to do uh, and, and inspiration too. Uh, my, my first thought on seeing this and, of course, a lot of the other portraits that Rob has done is that uh, it's hard to escape the sense that the Americans Who Tell the Truth Project is a sort of iconography, uh, uh, the intense faces, the sort of ethereal light that you see in, in some of them, the inscriptions, uh, all call up images of ancient paintings of saints, you know, with the, with the bright colors and the, and the gold leaf uh, halo and everything. So having been inducted into this august assembly somewhat, somewhat late, uh, 
for me at least, but uh, hopefully not for Rob. I feel like one of those obscure regional saints, uh, you know, in, in Europe who, uh, who don't get cathedrals named after them. But, uh, they're the, they're the saints of the rank and file, and uh, you know they they uh, uh, you know uh, do the job that needs to be done out out in the little villages and hamlets uh, throughout the country. I think, for example, Saint Drogo, who was the patron of coffee houses, midwives, unattractive people, and cattle. Uh, then there's St. Barbara, who is patron of firefighters and those who work with explosives. <laughs> this, is, this is true. And is invoked against being struck by lightning. So I got to thinking about that. Now, what, what, what could my role be here? And I thought, well, I could be patron of home brewers, arthritic fiddlers, bow-legged ministers, and people who didn't figure out what to do with their lives until they were well past 40. <laughs> and I could be invoked as protection against cocktail parties. <laughs> so as far as my actual qualifying for, uh, for this sort of canonization, there are many people, including many in this room, who are much more worthy. Uh, so I'm honored to be included in this work. I'm also dumbfounded, flabbergasted, embarrassed, but, but honored. So thank you. Thank you, Rob. Uh, I, do, I do have a few, I think we have some time, so I have a, I have a few words to offer. Uh, but before I do that, I think we need a little exercise. Um, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do that first. And any of you who've been around on uh, Spring Peeper Sunday at, at the First Congregational Church will know what, what, what's about to happen here. Uh, you know, they talk, uh, you hear a lot of talk about draining the swamp in Washington. Uh, and, and, uh, you, you know, it's, one could be forgiven for feeling as though the, uh, the uh, Potomac wetland that, that um, was filled to, to create the nation's capital was probably less noxious than what's actually going on there at the present time. But, uh, so, uh, but I don't want to talk, drain the, the, the swamp today. I, I want to be the swamp. So, and that's going to involve all of us. And here's how we do it. First of all, of course, there's, without rain, there's no swamp. And without thunder, there's no rain. So we start with the thunder, and then you, you stomp your feet like this. OK, and to make it real good, but first, we'll, the thunder will start over here on this side. And then it moves over here. On, huh? Pretty good. And then while it's thundering, you know the rain starts. You can hear it sort of pitter-pattering. And then it starts to fall a little bit harder. But the thunder hasn't stopped yet. And then you start to hear. And sure enough, then you begin to hear the wood frogs. And then, oh my gosh, it's the green frogs, and they go, bloop, 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 bloop. And then the bullfrogs come, roo roo, 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 roo. And then the rain lets up a little bit. Well, it's just pitter-pattering a little bit, a few spring peepers yet. And then the thunder kind of passes over. Thunder's over here, then it thunders over here, and then it disappears over the horizon. And that's the swamp. Uh, 
the, the purpose of this exercise may become a little more apparent after I've, I've said a few words here, but what I wanted to do was to help us all feel at home in nature by doing that and thinking of ourselves as being the swamp rather than just being an individual isolated human being. And uh, I'm going to uh, give you a little quote from Elizabeth Barrett Browning, the English poet, where she said, Earth is crammed with heaven, and every common bush of fire with God, and only he who sees takes off his shoes. The rest sit around and pluck blackberries. <laughs> we, can, we can take off our shoes and pluck back blackberries, that's it, fortunately. But we're told that when Moses uh, was out seeing for himself, what, that, what he saw was a burning bush. And uh, God spoke to Moses at that moment in time, we are told, not through any book or not through any priest or church or doctrine or dogma, but in the form of a living plant that was on fire. And this is the elegance of myth because this is precisely a description of plant metabolism. Every plant is essentially doing a slow burn as carbon and water and sunlight are synthesized by chlorophyll into sugars which the plant burns as the fuel for its life. And of course, this produces the fuel for the lives of all the animals as well. So every bush then is really a burning bush and every shrub is a revelation. So to say that the, the creator can only be revealed in books as Western religions have insisted now for, for thousands of years, is to say that there is no revelation unless some human being is there on hand to write it down. So the creator of heaven and earth is reduced to the condition of being an illiterate applicant for the position of deity who has to have a human being fill in all the paperwork. <laughs> this is, of course, ridiculous. And it's one of the, it's one of the marvels of human arrogance that claims of revelation through scripture alone are still heard today and are not seen for the self-serving folly that they are. While, uh, while I'm out walking, I tend to be curious about things and I look around a lot and, and oh, actually, to be truthful, which I have to be now. <laughs> <laughs> be easy. Uh, I, I also look around a lot when I'm driving. and then that, This is why people don't really like to ride with me that much anymore. But, but when you're looking around and observing nature, you see that, it, that every flaming leaf reveals something new, not only about itself, but about other leaves like itself and other things as well. A leaf is like a tree, it's like a lung, it's like a river delta, it's like a bolt of lightning. A star is like a starfish, it's like the uh, blossom of a buttercup, it's like the section cut through an apple with five points. The way the hands go around on an analog clock is very much like the way the uh, uh, planets rotate around the sun and the way the earth turns th through the day. So everything we see relates to other things and can teach us about other things as well. Uh, the water that goes down the drain is like the spiral at the center of a sunflower uh, or, or the, the, the shell of a, of a wrinkle or you know so many other things too. A cloud of dust is like a cloud of smoke, like a cloud of water vapor, like a cloud of ignorance or fear. So all of these and, and countless other analogies, they reveal us something, that we live in a poetic analog universe, far more than a literal digital universe. Uh, so th this is no clearer truth than can be revealed in nature without mediating language, books, or interpreters. And I always come back to Thomas Paine, one of the founding fathers who was actually drummed out of the pantheon of the Founding Fathers for his book, uh, The Age of Reason, which was a takedown of orthodox religion. 
And uh, uh, if you haven't read it, I, I couldn't recommend it more. But he talks about um, the word and what he says is, the creation speaks a universal language which every man can read. It cannot be forged. It cannot be counterfeited. It cannot be lost. It cannot be altered. It cannot be suppressed. And we would add, it also cannot be biased, censored, tweaked, photoshopped, or spun. It's all there and it's all true. Everything we see along the way teaches truths about other things that we can't see. So even things that we cannot see. So close your book, shut off your com computer, leave your iPhone, open your door and go. And there you will find the truth and all the truth that you'll ever really need. Um, I got, I'm going to make a jump oh, um, to uh, uh, a quick jump to uh, an English. This, this won't be terribly boring, <laughs> but I need this little piece of history here. Um, this, this refers to an English clergyman of the late 18th century by the name of William Paley. Has anybody heard of William Paley? Okay. Um, he, he, he wrote a book called Natural Theology. Uh, or Evidences of the Existence and Attributes of the Deity, and published in 1802. Um, you wouldn't read it unless you were, you, know, you were interested in theological trivia or maybe American history trivia. But, but, but he, he talks about how we can tell. Uh, he, well, I will add that Thomas Jefferson thought it considered an important book. Charles Darwin considered it. A, an important book, and uh, even Stephen Jay Gould and Richard Dawkins more recently studied it and took the time and the energy to refute it. The reason being that it presents a model of God that many of us hold without even thinking about it. He talks about walking out into a field and seeing a pocket watch lying in the grass, and that we infer from seeing that that there was someone who, who made it, who built it, who constructed uh, the pocket watch. And he says the same is true of the world that, that we see around us. We see this beautiful design in nature everywhere. And it, we infer from that that there is a designer behind it all. The problem with this, and there is a big problem with it, with this watchmaker model, uh, for, for 2,000 years or more, Western thought has seen nature as being distinct and separate from God. That it is, a cre uh, it is an object created by God. That it is God's servant uh, or that it's a manufactured product. And, we've, and, and, we, and this left us with an insoluble problem. Um, and that is the separation between uh, spirit and flesh or between mind and body, or between energy and matter. And this has resulted in us driving the sacred out of nature and putting it off somewhere far in the distance. And this alienation has led to the uh, what Rob was referring to as the, the, the commodification of nature the objectification of it, that it's only, you know, that it's only something for us to use, to buy, to, to, and sell. And as the world's people have continued to migrate away from the, uh, from the country and into the cities, we've been setting a wider and wider gulf between ourselves and, and the rest of nature. Uh, if it weren't for uh, a, a lot of people, if it weren't for their dogs and cats and their houseplants, they would have no contact whatsoever with the natural world. This isolation is taking its toll on us. Our sense of smell was originally fashioned to savor the scent of the world, of animals, of grass, of fire and flower. Uh, so when we smell only exhaust fumes and bad perfume all through the day, uh, and air pollution. We lose the sense of the rich and heady aromas that surround real living things in real life. Likewise, our ears were made to hear bird songs and, and frog calls and thunder and lightning and 
all of these things. And so when we only hear human voices and human-made machines day after day, we lose our place in the whole symphony of the cosmos. Same with our eyes. They were made to look at great distances, to scan the hills, to see animals moving across the face of the earth. Our bodies were formed to work and to move things and to build things and to climb and to stretch and to dig. And when we sit at a desk all day and ask our children to sit at desks all day, we lose that sense of our place and we lose our health as well. And the saddest part of all is that our souls were crafted to sense the sacred in everything, in every star, planet, leaf, cloud, creature. So when we only find divinity in, in churches or museums or concert halls uh, or uh, old books or nowhere at all, we are in danger of losing our souls. Like prisoners wasting away in a dark prison that we built by our own hands, we become angry, fearful, depressed, alienated, neurotic, and dangerous. And that's what's happening all around us. Now, I'm going to wrap it up, but I want to make it clear that I'm not trying to make a stealth argument for creationism or, or for a supernatural god uh, you know, uh, quite the contrary. I would say that there is no supernatural anything. Everything's all nature. So I'm not trying to make that case. Uh, uh, that said, I'm be we're beginning to see from the laws of physics, quantum physics and Newtonian physics and so many other ways of looking at things, that they and, and mathematics as it evolves, we're beginning to see that that even our scientific studies are are sort of more like poetry or metaphor because they keep changing. We keep trying to more clearly express what we're seeing out there, and we'll try this and find that it fits better than this and this and this. So we are seeing that the behavior of the universe is more is less and less like a machine and more and more like a living being. So here, here's a final thought experiment. I'll let you chew on that for a minute. Take a breath. The universe is more and more like a living being. So here's, here's a final little thought experiment. You remember that pocket watch we left on the ground. As you experience the joy and the beauty and the wonder of, of what you see around you every day. Uh, imagine that the hills of Camden and Acadia that you see, the, the mountain that you see, the ground you walk on, the waters of Blue Hill Bay that you sail or paddle across, uh, the sky that arches over us, are not some manufactured construction of some distant cosmic mechanical chemical engineer. Imagine that what you see all around you is alive, everything. Uh, one great self-creating body of which you are a part, to which you belong, to which you have belonged from the beginning, to which you will belong forever, that the whole creation, a great living creature in which you will always be at home, a body that suffers, that sings, that loves you. Imagine that you are part of the body of creation who lives, loves, suffers, and dies, and lives again, and ever laboriously struggles toward healing and wholeness. Thank you.
I didn't tell Rob that he had to prove today why I should have painted him. <laughs> but he did it. <clears throat> so uh, Rob and Becky are going to play some, some music. Yeah, yeah. We're going to all sing. Somewhere there, did those baskets ever move around? I think now's the time. You're gonna, there are going to be some baskets going around. So please contribute to Blue Hill Heritage Trust and Americans Who Tell the Truth if you can. We'd appreciate it. Oh, I know, there was one other little thing we sort of skipped in there. There was going to be a little question and answer. If anybody had any questions about some of this work, about Americans Who Tell the Truth, about, you know, a question for Rob, um, this is the moment when uh, we would uh, entertain that. And if nobody's... What's the title of the book you want us to read, Rob? <laughs> <laughs> oh. Oh, the age of reason. Yeah, that would be my first choice. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Okay. Take it away. Uh, th this little song some of you have heard before, and uh, it it's called "Roll On Panabska." <laughs> fur where your waters cut through down through your mountains and valleys you flew from the great northern woods to the ocean so blue roll on Penobscot roll on from spring's melting snow on Katahdin's steep side mile after mile of white water you ride Maine's highest mountain to her you roll on, Penobscot, roll on. Everybody. Roll on, Penobscot, roll on. Roll on, Penobscot, roll on. Mightiest river in the land of the dawn. Roll on, Penobscot, roll on. Big silver salmon in Maine shining sun. Gone back for spawning on the spring salmon run. Another great breeding of salmon begun. While you roll on, Penobscot, roll on, everybody. Roll on, Penobscot, roll on. Roll on, Penobscot, roll on. Mightiest river in the land of the dawn. Roll on, Penobscot, roll on. On Indian Island in the midst of your stream, the people of the river still cherish their dream. Over two th 600 years of self-governing, while you roll on, Penobscot, roll on. Roll, roll on, Penobscot, roll on. Roll on, Penobscot, roll on, mightiest river in the land of the dawn. Roll on, Penobscot, roll on. Log roll and lumberjacks rode you with ease, feeding a nation's great hunger for trees. Now clean up the spill of those paper mills, please. While you roll on, Penobscot, roll on, keep rolling. Roll on, Penobscot, roll on. Roll on, Penobscot, roll on. Mightiest river in the land of the dawn. Roll on, Penobscot, roll him. One more. Roll. 